uh, we might as well get started. Um, thank you all for coming. My name is Kristen Watson. I'm the uh, human rights investigator for the city of Iowa City, and um, I'm very happy to introduce our panelists today. Uh, Dr. Jeanette Gabriel is the director of the Schwab Center for Israel and Jewish Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And so we're very happy to have her here to talk about um, Panesh before the Shoah, um, the effect of Jewish 1930s refugees on Iowa City's progressivism. So take it away, Dr. Gabriel. Thank you very much, Kristen. Thank you for the invitation. It's, um, it's such an important moment in the history of the United States to be celebrating Jewish American Heritage Month. We really have unprecedented um, levels of anti-Semitism in the United States. And it seemed like such an important moment to look at another period in time where there was extreme anti-Semitism in the United States, which is the period leading up to uh, World War II. And uh, this is a continuation of work that I've been doing for quite some time coming out of the time that I spent at the Iowa Women's Archives at the University of Iowa um, Library, working on an archival collection focusing around the history of Jewish women in Iowa. Um, and so um, I have considered previously um, in public events, uh, lectures that you can see online, what the experience was, uh, what the communities in Iowa thought about um, post-World War II refugees. And today I wanna focus in a little bit more tightly on the Austrian and German refugees who came before the end of the war and consider the impact that that has had on Iowa City as a whole. Um, it struck me when I was um, a PhD student in Iowa City coming from the East Coast, in many ways how European Iowa City is. And um, I always sort of wanted to explore some of the roots of that. Uh, and I certainly can't make an argument that it was German and Viennese immigrants who have created the intellectual and progressive vigor um, entirely of Iowa City. But I'm going to try to make an argument that they certainly have contributed to it. So let me give you a little bit of background. Um, between the summer of 1938 and 1940, there were 75,000 Austrian and German refugees who settled in the United States. And this was after Kristallnacht. It was a moment of openness in fairly restrictive um, U.S. immigration policy, which allowed for a small number of highly educated immigrants to enter the country. Most of those immigrants joined the growing refugee community based in Washington Heights, which is a beautiful neighborhood in Northern New York City that has a lovely view out over the cliffs of the Hudson River. By the time the 1940s census was conducted, there were 20,000 refugees congregated in Washington Heights with two German language newspapers, eight kosher butcher shops, synagogues, restaurants, social and athletic clubs, and cafes, as well as Lublo's Plum Palm Garden, which offered German cabaret. Um, and all that is taken from Stephen Lowenstein's work, uh, Frankfurt on the Hudson. So the urban-based, highly educated refugees that came in this 
pre-war wave were very different from the post-war refugees that would trickle into the countries after the borders finally reopened in 1950-51. And the conditions of wartime America were also different. The enclave in Washington Heights was strongly patriotic. And they were very concerned about internal political discussions about the situation unfolding in Europe. And that played out in the pages of German language newspapers and in the neighborhood parks. Now, the focus of my presentation is not talking about Washington Heights, but actually talking about what I call the Jewish hinterlands, or when Jewish people are living out in areas of the country that are not part of these East Coast enclaves. And I'm gonna focus on, um, of course, Iowa and Iowa City, the region around Iowa City. Now, this was actually a very special area for Viennese and German refugees for a series of reasons. One was the Quakers set up a hostel called Scattergood in Scattergood School. And this was a model that they hoped to replicate as a refugee hostel in 16 other communities throughout the world. However, they ran into significant issues at Scattergood and it wound up being the only refugee hostel that they operated in these pre-war years. But the, um, the having the Scattergood hostel so close to Iowa City, located in West Branch, created a lot of um, momentum in terms of cross-cultivation of the refugees who were at Scattergood coming into Iowa City, and in particular to the University of Iowa, but interacting with the community in Iowa City as a whole, and not just Iowa City, but also Cedar Rapids and West Branch. Um, so that is one dynamic that's particularly different about Iowa City. The second, and this is a similarity that Iowa City had with other university towns across the United States, is that it was a place that German and Austrian scholars who were refugees came to work. And this, one can argue, has had the most significant long-term impact um, on the refugee influence in Iowa City. And the third is actually a single individual. And it's not often, I, I, I'm a social historian, it's not often that I would say a single individual has such a tremendous impact. But Dr. Arthur Stendler um, was uh, really a forerunner in um, thinking about how to continue the bringing over large networks of refugees. This was a policy that the Jewish community had invoked in signing many affidavits to bring over family members during the pogroms when the border, when the US borders closed in 1921. Stendler decides to continue that policy and uh, very dramatically uh, brings over 12 of his family members to Iowa City. And because they are all coming from a highly educated particular group um, within Germany, it has a significant um, impact on the region. And I'll talk a little bit more about Stendler as, as we move along. But I want to begin with Scattergood. There are many, many different histories of Scattergood, um, but I'm going to take a different tack. And, and I wanna say before I get into the focus around Scattergood, 
that work that has been done on the group of immigrants in Washington Heights tends to focus in three main areas. The attitudes that the refugees had to their homeland, um, Annie Schindelin's work uh, really focuses on the influence that refugees had in Germany in the post-war era. The role of artists and intellectuals in influencing American culture and higher education. Um, of course, there's Anthony Helbut's groundbreaking work, Exiled in Paradise, German Refugee Artists and Intellectuals in America from the 1930s to the present, and even Erhard Barr's close examination of the refugee community in Los Angeles. Uh, and finally, there's been some important scholarship that has documented the efforts of the American Emergency Committee in the aid of displaced foreign scholars. And that organization uh, played a significant role in bringing refugees to the University of Iowa. This project, as I said, is really much more focused on the Jewish ex experience in the hinterlands and taking a look at what the impact of the German and Austrian refugees is on uh, the Midwest communities and also the small Jewish communities that existed within these uh, Midwest areas. So I want to begin not by revisiting the histories that have been done of Scattergood, and there are several really excellent histories, but rather instead, taking a look at some of the power behind the scenes that allowed Scattergood to happen. The American Friends Services Committee, which was a Quaker organization, organized Scattergood nationally, but it could not have taken place. The hostel could not have been set up and flourished without local support from within Iowa. So um, let me see if I can just pull up my presentation there and we can um, take a look at some of this. Whoops, that didn't do it, did it? Okay, sorry about that. Let me try again here. Oh, I see, all right. One more time. You'd think after years of Zoom, I would be better at this. Okay. So um, I wanna start by looking at where some of that local support from Scattergood comes from. As I was doing research on Scattergood, I was very surprised to keep coming across this gentleman's name, James J. Newland, who was the vice president of Pioneer Hybrid Corn Company in Des Moines. And J.J. Newland was a Quaker. He was on uh, the board of the Scattergood Hostel and he had a tremendous tremendous impact on bringing about the hostel and supporting it, building up financial and political support from throughout the state. Newland, whose work with the pioneer um, corn hybrid industry has been very well documented, at least in the Des Moines region, but not really looking at its national significance. His perspective was about creating hybrid corn so that a greater, uh, a much greater population could be fed throughout the world. And by the beginning of World War II, about 90% of all the corn that's being developed is for hybrid. Um, and the impact that Newland has um, in creating opportunities for the people coming out of Scattergood is really tremendous because he is connected within Iowa. So it's not just this outside Quaker American Friends Service Committee project 
put an Inside Iowa project. And I want to specifically mention his son, Owen Newland, who, um, as a young man, immediately at the end of the war, goes to Europe to work with refugees and really continues his family's com Quaker commitment to supporting refugees, um, not just uh, in Europe, but also in the United States. And so this very tight connection between Pioneer Hybrid Corn Company um, and, and the Scattergood Hostel is something that really deserves more consideration. Um, Scattergood tends to be looked at as a national project that is about integrating the German and Austrian immigrants into sort of the Iowa Midwest and providing them opportunities. One of the reasons that it's considered to fail is because it is sort of outsiders. Um, but the Newland narrative challenges that and suggests there's a very interesting and rich, um, whoops, whoops, missed my notes, uh, uh, interesting and rich history within Iowa that really needs to be looked at a little bit further. Um, for example, Newland works with the editor at the Des Moines Register, Waymac, W.W. Waymac, and sets up that the Des Moines Register will be producing a series of editorials um, in support of Scattergood. And I want to also mention that Newland is really, really instrumental in William Penn College in Oskaloosa, Iowa, which was a Quaker college founded in 1873, which sort of collapses after the Great Depression and has a moment of revitalization under President Cecil Hinshaw, which Newland brings in, um, who focuses on three main areas draft resistance social equality and racial integration. And now this gets us to a very interesting point that the keep in mind, the German and Austrian refugees are eager to integrate and they are also very concerned about what is happening in Europe. They don't necessarily agree with the Quaker position on draft resistance. And there's also a tension at play within Scattergood about whether or not the largely Jewish refugees could be, could be viewed as openly Jewish. And many of the uh, uh, refugees who are, I'm just not getting this right today, many of the refugees who are at Scattergood uh, comment on how uncomfortable they feel practicing Jewish holidays, not that they feel the Quakers are in any way pressuring them to become Quaker, but that they feel they need to in some ways hold back from being openly Jewish in order to be seen as open to assimilation and making connections with the local community. So this big press article in uh, the Iowa City newspaper is a perfect example of this tension. Refugees at Scattergood prepare for Christmas. Well, the reality is, is that the vast majority of the refugees, of course, are not actually um, uh, celebrating Christmas, uh, but this is not something that is recognized by Scattergood or necessarily seen as the message that they want to take out into the broader community at large. So this tension as it develops 
um, creates impact that while there are uh, a lot of refugees at Scattergood, their main focus over time really becomes trying to get out as quickly as possible and trying to find jobs. And uh, I want to highlight there, this is a, um, a, a draft card in uh, World War II from one of the residents, um, Lewis Hack, and he is listing his residency uh, at Scattergood. And uh, you can see he's from Kronich in Bavaria, and he's listing himself as unemployed. So the, uh, the average stay at Scattergood is a little less than four months. And families that are coming there, or um, it, more often single men, are really looking for opportunities to move along. So now I want to mention uh, the role that Pioneer Hybrid really plays in placing people in jobs. This is Carl Schnabel from Vienna. And uh, Carl um, was at Scattergood. His uh, uh, son was in kinder transport out of Vienna uh, and was in England where he um, uh, mentored under an Episcopalian uh, reverend. And um, the family was reunited in Omaha after the war. Um, Carl is able to get jobs in seed companies that are connected to Newland's network. Uh, so Newland really sets up a network for jobs where he's asking his colleagues throughout the seed industry to take a chance in hiring immigrants and to bring them on um, and we see this in a variety of, of ways. For example, ML Deutsch, who's a very close friend of Karl Schnabel, um, in Germany was an executive in a brewery and had a law degree. Um, uh, when he leaves Scattergood, he's able, in November of 1939, he's able to get a clerical job at the Des Moines office of Pioneer Hybrid Corn Company and later on become the accountant and bookkeeper there. So it's this type of network for jobs that is providing opportunities. Other immigrants, uh, refugees in Scattergood are sort of desperately trying to find jobs locally. And this creates a relationship between the local community and the refugees. For example, uh, Jacob and Melanie Winkler, were offered a shared management position at the University of Iowa's Hillel House, and later on moved to Chicago where Jacob worked as a draftsman. Uh, Rudy Schreck, uh, who was one of the residents at Scattergood, got a night clerk job at a very small hotel in Corning, Iowa, before he was able to get a job selling uh, fuller brushes in Iowa City. And a student, um, several students, both Peter Schick and, uh, and another veterinarian student, Peter Lugas, both worked on Iowa farms bef uh, before they went to college. So there is an attempt to sort of uh, move out into the countryside in a sense and find jobs uh, in the local community. And in some cases, uh, people stay. In many other cases, they they move on um, because it is challenging to to stay in small towns for this particular group, 
of German and Austrian refugees who are used to a much more urban culture. And so that brings me to the story of some of the scholars who are um, coming into Scattergood and then through Scattergood getting opportunities to study uh, throughout Iowa, in particular at the University of Iowa, and then also getting academic, academic jobs. Uh, so I want to just mention a couple of them. Um, the first that I want to talk about is a is a complicated figure. Uh, his name is Ernest um, Vanda Vandahas, and he is a, a radical activist in Italy, where he grows up, a, a dissident under Mussolini, and um, he is jailed under Mussolini for a period of three years, where he spends most of his time in solitary confinement, um, and then is able somehow to reunite with a brother in the United States and um, make his way to New York and then out to Scattergood. So while he is at Scattergood, he um, finds an opportunity to um, uh, go to the University of Iowa and um, really quite a fascinating story. He is uh, studying as a master's student in economics and he's working in the kitchen while he's at the University of Iowa in 1941 and 42. As some faculty members are supporting him by paying his tuition. Right upon finishing his degree, um, he meets up with Sidney Hook, who's a, a staunch right-wing uh, conservative and becomes a leading right-wing conservative economist, even to the point of um, to the point of uh, uh, becoming close to Kissinger. Um, so I'm I'm just really struggling with my PowerPoint here today. Okay, so he this is a picture of him, and it's really quite a famous situation that someone would flip so far from the left to the right. Um, I wouldn't say in any means that, uh, that Iowa necessarily played a role in that, but, um, but he reflects back on the situation in Scattergood and comments that people are really struggling, uh, trying to blend in to Americanization, uh, but uh, not really wanting to because they come from an elite situation in uh, Vienna and throughout Germany that has really disappeared. For example, at Scattergood, there's emphasis on men and women both doing chores, which is not part of the Viennese culture, and also that everyone there is expected to do farm work, which doesn't fit in well with the idea of urban intellectuals. Um, but there is also sort of a very vibrant group of people who are coming in to Scattergood who begin to look for opportunities and the University of Iowa uh, actually offers them. This is Frank Schloss. He was a, a ski champion in, um, in Vienna. And here he is able to set up a class within the women's athletic department in the spring of 1941, where he's teaching girls how to ski. And this is such a, a cool little um, piece showing the sort of different jumping steps that he's doing. So the uh, the contributions, the university is actually quite open because it's mentioned in 
several places that the, the curriculum is really not flexible. It's not like people are developing new classes at this time. And yet having all of these refugees come provides an opportunity that the community can't just ignore. Um, I wanna mention Donald Hopf. His father was a mathematics professor in Germany who lost his job being Jewish and finally was able to get another position at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Donald is able to come to the United States as a young man, and he gets a scholarship at Drake College in uh, Des Moines. And he gives an interview where he basically says, Hitler doesn't seem that bad. Um, he's, he's very naive. Um, but what's fascinating about Donald um, and his sort of he, he he's doing a lot of wild student things in Des Moines. There's a car accident that he and a bunch of young men um, are driving wildly. And he also is, you know, as you can see here, putting ads in the local newspapers looking for work. And this is really interesting because this is not sort of an Iowa model. This is what the Viennese and German community back in Washington Heights are doing to try to make connections with each other. And so he's sort of employing that same tactic in the local Des Moines newspaper. Um, so then I, I really wanna mention some of the quality um, scholars uh, that come to Scattergood that are embraced by the University of Iowa. And um, in particular here is uh, Fred Herzog, who was a lifetime judge at the age of 33 in Vienna, who had his lifetime appointment stripped and fled the country. And uh, he is now, once he gets to Scattergood and Iowa City, he is entering the Iowa College of Law as a freshman in order to get recertification. And while that sounds very, very hard, he's actually one of the lucky ones because uh, the certification is only really available for the younger scholars who are coming into the United States. You have some very experienced lawyers and doctors over the age of 50 who cannot participate in a recertification process. So Dr. Herzog is able to quickly um, you know, slide through the College of Law and begin his career anew in the United States. And these are, these are really opportunities uh, that the University of Iowa is extending to the refugees in an attempt to help them with their integration process. Um, and I want to mention that one of the interesting things that's happening at Scattergood is there are many community lectures. And I wanna give you just an example of a couple of those, that these highly uh, trained academics and scholars are going out into the surrounding communities and giving lectures. Um, here we have uh, a party um, hosted by Dr. and Mrs. Arthur Stendler uh, to try to integrate the 12 refugees that he has brought over, including his cousin, Julius Blaston. And, but you will see that they're doing it um, within the context of Americanization. Uh, they're going to sing Christmas carols, right? And then also here we have a student club at the uh, at YWCA, uh, William Feist, who's a German refugee. Um, and, and goes to work as a John Deere engineer in the Quad Cities. 
um, is giving a lecture on who is my neighbor, again, at a Christmas play. So while the local community is interested in hearing from uh, the refugees, in a sense, it is very much on the community's terms, not uh, necessarily wanting to integrate them as uh, Jewish, uh, but to take some benefits from their experiences as scholars and, and artists. Uh, so there are a series of other scholars who come to the University of Iowa and make a tremendous impact, including Dr. Arthur Stengler. They come at different periods of time, some of them a little earlier than the 38 post-Kristallnacht, and some of them after the war, but the impact they have is really tremendous on the city in terms of creating a powerful um, tradition at the University of Iowa of top, of top scholars who are engaged in the highest levels of their fields. So here we have Kurt Lewin. Kurt Lewin um, is a, 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 an economist. He trains as an economist and he uh, finishes his degree in economics at um, the University of Iowa, even though he has significant training uh, back in uh, Vienna. Um, but again, he needs that recertification. And he becomes uh, a founding member of the University of Iowa's geography department. Now, Lewin is um, a very, creates a very important development in, uh, in human geography in that he is arguing for agency and, um, oh, where am I here? He's arguing for agency and um, in many ways is seen as one of the foremost uh, agency of, of humans, that geography is not just uh, a scientific study, but it's a scientific study of human behavior. And many uh, people view Lewin as sort of the formative voice in the development of the field of human geography. So initially, um, uh, uh, it seems like he's going to make a tremendous impact on Iowa City, um, but he stays from 1935 to 1944, and then he moves to MIT, where he establishes the Research uh, Center for Group Dynamics. So um, sometimes it's not like a long-lasting tradition, but it is enough uh, to really have an impact um, on the field. And, uh, so then I wanna mention George Lockman Moss. George Moss is one of the most sort of interesting uh, scholars. He comes as a history professor to the University of Iowa between 1948 and 1955. Um, he is involved with the Quakers, but he does not come through Scattergood. He went to college at a Quaker school in England um, and he joins the uh, army, he gets to the United States, he joins the army as part of an army specialized training program at the State University of Iowa, where he recruited for soldiers who were scheduled to take part in post-war US occupation in Europe. About a year later, he becomes a member of the history department of faculty and um, really just as the, uh, 
the uh, veterans from World War II are coming into the university. He uh, becomes a very important figure within the history department developing the curriculum and a popular teacher and in demand all throughout the Midwest. Um, so he finally, uh, in 1955, leaves to go to the University of Wisconsin, uh, where he builds uh, uh, one of the most significant European history programs in the country there. Um, uh, in addition to uh, these scholars, probably the scholar that people know the most about is going to be Gustav Bergman. A lot of people in Iowa City will probably know that name. Uh, Bergman was born in Vienna. He earned his PhD in mathematics at the University of Vienna in 1928. He got his PhD. Uh, he also uh, he uh, studied with um, Albert Einstein in Berlin. Uh, and he finally had to flee in 1938. And he came to the University of Iowa where he became a professor of both philosophy and psychology. Uh, so his work with Einstein in the early 30s in Berlin uh, really uh, established his stature as a scholar. Uh, during the early 30s, he was a member of the Vienna Circle, which was a collaboration of scientists, philosophers, mathematicians, um, who all supported logical positivism, uh, which is, of course, the theory that empirical observation is necessary to verify um, any sorts of statements of value. So Bergman and Kurt Lewin, who comes uh, to the University of Iowa in psychology, create a powerful force of top scholars in the country who are located at the University of Iowa. Now, I want to mention that um, it's very important for Bergman that he has the support of the Emergency Committee of Academic Displaced Scholars. Um, and not just that, uh, he also has the support of the University of Iowa president, Eugene Gilmore, who's really instrumental in creating these opportunities for the refugee scholars to come uh, to the university. And, uh, recertify their degrees, and also to build departments and have some space to grow. Um, in 1972, uh, Bergman is among five University of Iowa faculty members who's named to the first Carver professorships that are established as a $3.5 million gift to the university from Roy J. Carver. So his impact is really, is really quite profound. Um, and in addition to all of these folks now, I wanna to shift to the Stendler narrative. Um, it's really quite impossible to underestimate Stendler's impact um, and the impact of his family members that he brought to the University of Iowa. So Stendler is, in fact, some people will argue that he structured his entire uh, program um, at the university, which is really about providing uh, childhood medical care um, around structures related to uh, labs in Vienna. So Stendler um, decides to bring over these 12 family members. And this is actually a pretty controversial move in the sense that many people would see this as 
misusing the affidavit process in order to funnel in many different family members. But the people that he brings over have a tremendous impact on Iowa. Um, for example, he brings uh, lots of nieces and nephews and uh, cousins, and uh, uh, they all attend the University of Iowa uh, and graduate with various degrees, go on to graduate studies, um, and have a significant impact in the, uh, particularly in Des Moines, where many of them moved to Des Moines. Um, so, let me see if I can just uh, go back to my PowerPoint to show you some of those pictures. Okay, so I've just been uh, chilling along here. Here's George Moss in front of his home in Iowa City in 1936. One of the reasons Moss was so controversial is that he was openly gay. Um, in a very early period of time and uh, received a lot of backlash uh, for that, uh, uh, both within the Jewish community and without. This is documents that are found at the University of Iowa archives. It shows Bergman's travel documents and then him also here at the University of, of Iowa. And here is Arthur Stindler. Uh, I wanna mention his mother who he brings with him, Olga. Uh, Olga attends classes at the University of Iowa in her early 70s. Her entire family is part of this powerful musical and scholarly circle around Albert Einstein in Vienna in the early 30s. So um, Stendler's cousin, Jul Julius Glaston, is a bar uh, baritone. He's considered sort of a child prodigy from the age of 11. He also studies... Uh, uh, law. So this is showing sort of the intersections in the Viennese world between medicine, um, uh, music, science, and the and the arts. Uh, and here we have a picture of Stendler opening up his home to all of these different cousins uh, and nieces and nephews. They're living with him and then they're moving on to Des Moines. Um, one of my favorite narratives of his nieces uh, of his, I'm sorry, of his nephews, Fred and Michael Matthews, um, they are horsemen and uh, very active in the riding community, in stables, in bringing in famous Viennese horses and uh, playing a very active role in the Raccoon Valley Pony Club in, in Des Moines. Uh, so that's a, a really powerful sort of network throughout the area of creative people who are doing fascinating things um, all throughout the region. Uh, so while there's a lot going on in Iowa City, it also is spreading beyond Iowa City through Stendler's connections into Des Moines. Um, I'm just really in my presentation mentioning a small number of, of narratives. There's, there's many, many more to tell um, in, in closing so that we have a little bit of time for Q&A. I wanna talk a little bit about what I think is the impact of these individuals and how they really uh, affected uh, the progressive aspects of Iowa City. Um, and, uh, and, and I would be happy to share with people uh, uh, much more information on many of these individuals and the role that they played, but in the interest of a short presentation, I'm just really giving you um, an overview. 
So in thinking about what the impact is of these individuals, uh, there are uh, Julius Glaston and his wife are collectors of medieval art, uh, 15th and 16th century medieval art. They show their art at the University of Iowa Art Museum uh, and uh, they're bringing in um, academics and art artists from all over the world to come into both Des Moines and to, uh, and to Iowa City all the time. So that in a sense, Iowa City sort of becomes a hub around visiting scholars and lectures and activities. Uh, I think that's one of the first and foremost um, interesting and significant impacts. Um, but before I speak too positively, um, I want to mention some of the negative is that there was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in Iowa City. Um, and, and that doesn't make it really any different from the rest of the country. Uh, there's there's anti-Semitic incidents happening throughout the country. Um, in 1937, uh, Rabbi Lubchansky, who is the rabbi at Aguda Sakim Synagogue, is attacked on the street by a group of youngsters. Um, he uh, reports them to the police and this is sort of denigrated in the local news as uh, overreaction. Uh, there's another big incident 10 years later after the war where uh, a Hebrew scholar in Iowa City who will later, be later become the rabbi at Aguda Sakim is attacked and badly beaten on the streets of Iowa City. Uh, the Iowa City um, Attorney General's office does an investigation and finds contrary to interview statements that are made right after the attack that this is not related to anti-Semitism in any way. Interesting that the, and, and not surprising, that the Jewish community does not uh, want to press charges, does not want to bring attention to these, to these matters. Um, so uh, let me say a couple of things here. One of the things that Stendler does that has a tremendous impact on the future of Iowa City, and in fact, the future of orthopedic care. It's the orthopedic clinic that he sets up primarily for children at the University of Iowa Hospital is um, that he uh, offers a position to uh, Ruth Jackson. And Ruth Jackson is um, uh, graduated from medical school and unable to find a position in the post-war period. Uh, she contacts Arthur Stendler and he is thrilled to give her a position in orthopedic surgery at the University of Iowa. And she becomes recognized as the first woman orthopedic surgeon in the US. And this, it, to exist to this day, the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, which is dedicated to the advancement of women in orthopedics is uh, named in her honor. Um, I would also suggest that there's, um, connections with the Bergman family that create, that create tremendous impact across time. And uh, I wanna mention in particular, um, Bergman's daughter, uh, who only recently passed away, uh, Hannah Bergman, um, and the longstanding impact that she had uh, on the uh, uh, progressive community in Iowa City. Uh, this is not to overstate the existence of, of many others, but Hannah Weston um, lived in Iowa City for most of her adult life. 
uh, and she came uh, to New York in 1939. And um, uh, when Gustav Bergman was hired at the University of Iowa, he, br he brought her to Iowa City in 1944, where he and his second wife, Lola Bergman, who was a historian and a printmaker, brought her up. Um, so Hannah Bergman Weston is well known uh, for her activism in the Demo Democratic Party. At the age of 46, she completed law school at the University of Iowa and ran a private law firm. Probably many of the people watching this program today uh, know about her and could tell me more. Um, she was very, very active in the ACLU and supported the organization's decision to defend the Nazis' right to march at Skokie um, and was very active throughout the community uh, as a volunteer in uh, a variety of causes that would be seen as still today somewhat controversial, providing clean needles to drug users um, and working with homeless organizations. So it's this type of legacy that is, uh, again, this is just a snapshot of a, a few individuals. It doesn't necessarily create a broader pattern, but these, the legacy of the individuals who remained um, and uh, is powerful and the legacy that the scholars built here at the University of Iowa uh, in Iowa City, uh, really bringing the reputation of the university to a national and international level has great resonance across time. Um, so I think I will stop there and I can see there's already a few questions pending. Um, I look forward to uh, all of you sort of feel free to just jump in. Would you like me to sort of start answering your questions that you put in the chat? I can, I, I can just go through those if you'd like. Yeah, if you'd like to do that or I can read them either Oh, way. sure, 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 that's fine. It would be best if you read them probably. Sure, we have one um, attendee says, why doesn't Iowa City have a bigger Jewish population? I would think we would have more because of the refugees. So that's a really interesting question. Um, the longstanding Jewish community in Iowa City is based around small business owners, uh, starting in really the, there was a very, very small early German Jewish community, uh, but then the influx of Russian Jews around the turn of the century were small business owners. And that varies, ver uh, that's really different from the refugee population that we're seeing, which is, uh, coming out of urban-based, highly educated sort of academics. The nature of academics is they tend to move from institution to institution throughout their career. It's more unusual that they stay. And um, perhaps it's sort of the town and gown tension that uh, you can see sort of running through my presentation in a sense that the local Jewish community that sustains across time is uh, in the town with the local businesses as compared to the academic Jewish community that comes and goes uh, across the decades. So my second question is, how does these stories compare to other Midwestern states? For example, did U of Wisconsin have influx of Jewish urban well-educated individuals? They did, yes, they did. They had the same type of uh, impact of Austrian immigrants, but because uh, they did not have a hostile like Scattergood, 
the type of um, immigrant experience to the university was more one dimensional. I think there was greater creativity at the University of Iowa in trying to create opportunities, both um, through integrating students as undergraduates from Scattergood, as graduate students, and also recertification of their degrees uh, that took place during the period before the war that we don't see at Madison because that hostel wasn't there. Also, Wisconsin is a little bit different. I say this because it's my alma mater um, and I came out of a small town in Wisconsin and, and, uh, and went to the University of uh, uh, Wisconsin-Madison is that much of the Jewish influx into Madison really happens during the 1960s uh, anti-war movement rather than the earlier period? Those are both great questions. It's, it's, there is something that is different about Iowa, um, not just because of Arthur Stendler's sort of crusading activism. And again, uh, you can see how careful he had to be uh, because people would argue that he was uh, sort of abusing the affidavit system, which legally he was not, but it could have been viewed that way from an anti-immigrant perspective. Um, but uh, it's not just Stendler, it's really the dynamic with Scattergood and having all these sort of young people. Now you will notice, and I wanna comment on this, that my presentation is almost entirely about men. And this really bothered me <laughs> tremendously. And, um, and as I dug into the work a little bit more, it's not that there weren't professional women, certainly at Scattergood, there were some of the top political leaders in Germany like uh, that were located at Scattergood, but they, uh, these very professional women who came to Scattergood, political activists and professional social workers and academics did not choose to stay or seek out opportunities in Iowa City. And um, some scholars who are talking about the problems of integration of women refugees, talk about the double challenge that women refugees have bringing family members um, and uh, that in some cases, they're just seeking to go back to Germany as soon as possible after the war. So that's answering a question I sort of anticipated would, would rise because I certainly was asking it. We don't have any more written questions. If people want to raise their hands, um, you as a co-host can allow them to talk or I can allow them to talk. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to take questions. Or people can talk, type their uh, questions into the Q&A or the chat box too. I will say it's very interesting how the idea of Scattergood was to provide economic opportunities um, for the Viennese refugees. Many, many Viennese refugees who were in Washington Heights with higher academic degrees were never able to work as professionals again and didn't have the recertification opportunities. So in that sense, the Quaker experiment really provided a tremendous opportunity for many of these Jewish immigrants that they could not have had in Washington Heights. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, Washington Heights was a really vibrant intellectual community. And this is always the cost of sort of moving out into the rural spaces. 
the question about why isn't there a larger Jewish community in Iowa, I think um, as a Jewish person who lived in Iowa for a while, and I'm sure many others would say how challenging it really is to, uh, to live in a small town as a Jewish person that isn't, isn't unfriendly, but also um, perhaps isn't uh, openly friendly or embracing. Many of the Jewish people who lived in Iowa um, in the small towns throughout the state found it really challenging to provide their children with religious education and often would move to larger urban areas in order to make that possible. Any other questions for Dr. Gabriel? Looks uh, like we've got one in that, yeah. Yes. Um, someone says, I am interested in George Moss, who was <laughs> gay. How did you discover this? Often in history, those things are, are not recorded. Right. Um, Moss is a really fascinating individual, very unusual. Um, of course, keep in keep and what's fascinating about Moss, of course, there's a vibrant gay scene in Vienna before the war. So it wouldn't have been that unusual for Jewish intellectuals um, to be gay in Vienna. But once you become a refugee and you're now sort of mm, dependent on the international Jewish community for charity and the Quaker community, there's a sort of heteronormative pressure and he does get married and then divorced. Um, uh, so he's, he's not without some tension. But he is really quite a um, crusading sort of figure. I hate to say before his time, because there were so many other people who were Jewish gay academics at his time. It's, it's just that he, uh, he really didn't try to hide it at all. Um, and uh, it's, it's something that really struck, struck me is that it's not being used in any way against him throughout his career. In fact, what we see more being used against the Jewish academics is any sort of leftist ties that they might be construed as communists, especially as we move into the McCarthy years um, after the war. It's a really great question. I, if you want to reach out to me by email, I would be happy to point you in the direction of some of, uh, some of the scholarship that's been done on this. And it's, and it's just mentioned in passing, like it's not a big thing, um, uh, which I certainly think it was. <laughs> and we have a couple of comments um, which are <laughs> resonating with me because I have had similar uh, experiences. One attendee says, my mom was so proud that her church invited some Jewish people to a potluck Seder. They served pork. <laughs> Um, yes, welcome to Iowa, right? Uh, I, I can't tell you how often this happens. And I want to comment on the matzah at High V. I'll tell you, you know, living in Omaha, we have the exact same problem. Uh, we only had one store carrying um, Passover products this year. It's, it's, uh, it's really amazing how we live in a culture of much greater diversity. And, uh, uh, but yet, um, how much more challenging it is to find uh, Jewish products. Um, and part of that uh, is perhaps the dwindling, dwindling populations, though, though I, uh, the dwindling populations in, in Iowa City, and uh, it's remained fairly stable, but it's such a low amount. The pork tension is a really huge one, right? And um, 
it's it's not just for the Jewish community. This is a problem for the Muslim community too. It's so deeply integrated into the culture of Iowa, right? And and the hog farming and um, there's very little sense of really who the who the Jewish people are. Um, I, I, you know, as the director of the Schwab Center for Israel and Jewish Studies at UNO, I often have students tell me that, the that I'm the first Jewish person they've ever met. Um, and, and, you know, behind closed doors will ask me lots of embarrassing questions, which is why I'm there, right? Uh, and uh, it's a good experience for them to be able to ask. But the, in many, uh, most people's experience is that they really haven't had a lot of contact with Jewish people. And in order to integrate the Jewish community went out of their way to, in small towns like Iowa City, uh, to not really be noisy about being Jewish uh, in order to integrate well into the community. And perhaps that's a dynamic that still exists, right? So um, you know, nobody, nobody from the Jewish community would have said anything to the church about serving pork because they wouldn't want to make them feel bad. Uh Someone comments, uh, the New Pioneer Store supports by offering Passover foods. Yeah, I'm not surprised. That's great to hear. I'm still a shareholder. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Um, and, and it's nice to know that there, there is a place that you can still get uh, Passover products. Um, but, you know, it's it's a question of sort of what what do people, how do people see the Jewish community? I think that's really the question is, do they do they understand the practices and rituals of the Jewish community, or is it something that's seen as sort of hidden and other? And uh, you know, I think uh, especially in an atmosphere of rising anti-Semitism, I want to say again how much I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all because it really is a moment where uh, many stereotypes about Jewish wealth and Jewish greed and the Jewish community acting as sort of a cabal are really. Um, resurfacing in our society, and uh, it's it's a uh, it's a it, any opportunity that we can have to speak out against those stereotypes is is valuable. Well, we have time for one more question. If anyone has one before we sign off, or comment, doesn't have to be a comment, question. Yes. <laughs> Ah. Well, it's a thank you for a wonderful presentation. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed speaking to you all today. And uh, like I said, please feel free. You can follow up by email. I'd be happy to answer any questions or share some of the follow-up research. This is, and uh, if you have friends that want to see the presentation, I think it will be available online. Um, so it's, uh, this is really, the, the stories I'm telling you are stories that are are largely unheard and unknown, and yet um, have an impact on, on what Iowa City is as a community. So thank you very much. Wonderful. And um, yes, it will be available on City Channel 4. Give us a couple of days to uh, for the cable staff to prepare it. But um, other than that, it will be up on our website. So uh, thank you very much.